Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Bolin, President Emeritus of KQED, a member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors, and your moderator for today's program. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. We appreciate your considering a donation to support the Commonwealth Club's work. And if you wish to do so, please click the blue donate button at the top of your YouTube chat or visit the club's website at commonwealthclub.org. We also want to remind you to submit questions via the chat room next to your screen, and I'll get to as many as possible later in the program. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our very special guest, Barry Sonnenfeld director of the hit films Men in Black, Adam's Family, and Get Shorty, and author of the new memoir, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, Memoirs of a Neurotic Filmmaker. As you're about to hear, Barry has outrageous and hilarious stories to tell from his idiosyncratic upbringing in New York City, to his breaking into the film as a cinematographer with the Coen brothers, to his unexpected career as the director behind such huge film franchises as the Men in Black, Adam's Family, and beloved works such as Get Shorty, Pushing Up Daisies, and a series of unfortunate events. Barry says his philosophy of life is regret the past, fear the present, dread the future. He also quotes Will Smith as once joking that he wanted to take Barry to the Philadelphia public schools and say, if this guy could be a successful film director of big budget films, anyone can. Get ready for an engaging conversation that will inspire anyone who thinks they can't succeed of life in life because of a rough beginning. Welcome, Barry Sonnenfeld. Thank you very much. Thanks. So you had a debate with Larry David about who, which of you was the most neurotic person. And after much badgering, Cheryl Hines, the actress who has worked with both you and played Larry's wife on Curb Your Enthusiasm, declared you the winner. So how did that feel? I felt pretty great about it. Larry was quite upset, but you know, you you wonder you don't want to be the second best or the second worst at any anything. Um, and Cheryl announced that I was the most neurotic on the David Letterman show. So that was particularly thrilling for me. Uh, unfortunately, about two weeks later, I was having lunch in uh, in Manhattan at a power breakfast. Uh, it was breakfast at a power breakfast uh, restaurant. And across the room was Larry David. I didn't see him. So I'm eating my breakfast, trying to convince the guy to do a, an an animated movie I wanted to do. And I hear... Larry's voice yelling from across the room, Sonnenfeld, you claim you're more neurotic than I am, and you're having eggs with yolks, you're having bacon, and, and you're buttering your bread because he felt anyone who's neurotic should only have egg whites, not have... So I, I, uh, I yelled across at him. I said, crisp, extra crispy for the bacon. And we got into this discussion. It was, it was pretty thrilling, but um, I... um. I sort of embrace my neuroses. You know, after reading about your childhood, it's hard to believe that you are simply neurotic as opposed to institutionalized. Thank you so much. <laughs> Some of the stories are so bizarre. I, I mean, you couldn't make these things up, so I know you haven't. 
Could you start by telling us the story behind the title of the book? Sure. You know, I was uh, very, very overprotected by my mother. You know, she said if I went away to sleep away school, others call it college, she would commit suicide. So I was forced to live live at home. So here I am. I'm 17 years old. I'm on a date and we're at Madison Square Garden. It's a big uh, peace concert. It's 2.20 in the morning and Jimi Hendrix is warming up for the second time. He had stormed off earlier in the evening. So at 2.20 in the morning, over the PA system, 19,600 people, Madison Square Garden, comes the announcement, Barry Sonnenfeld, call your mother. Now, now here's the thing. Immediately, I start to cry uncontrollably because I assume my father has died. Because how else could you... A, first of all, how did she get anyone to answer the phone? How did she get to enough levels of security to get someone to convince them that I needed to be paged? So that means something pretty horrible is happening in my life. This is pre, you know, cell phones or pagers. So I take a dime out of my pocket. I go to the nearest payphone, weeping uncontrollably. And of course, because I stood up as soon as the announcement was made, Everyone in my area knew I was Barry Sonnenfeld. So since it's Madison Square Garden, very quickly there's the chant of Barry, Barry, which is not making Jimmy particularly pleased. So I go, I call my mother, I'm weeping. I say, Mom, who died? She said, I thought you did. I said, what do you mean? She said, it's 2.20. You said you'd be home by two. I said, yeah, but didn't they tell you the concert was still going on? She said, yeah, but they couldn't confirm you were there. So that was that was mom. That was the level of, of profound neediness surrounded by narcissism, which is a terrible combination. So your, your mom, Kelly was an elementary school art teacher. She was a favorite of the students and a teacher's union activist, uh, but her mothering skills were somewhat lacking. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your relationship with your mother as you grew up? Right. So, you know, in addition to threatening to commit suicide if I went to sleepaway school, she was not a cook. So uh, early in life, she taught me how to use a hammer and a sharp knife to defrost the freezer because this is pre, you know, frost-free freezers. And I would uh, make myself Swanson TV dinners. And there were three I loved, the fried chicken, the all-white meat turkey, and the fried shrimp. So I would make two of those a night. So I pretty much cooked for myself. Um, uh, you know, uh, there, was a, there was a period of time when I was gonna be a, a sophomore in college, where I decided I just can't live at home and go to NYU and sleep at home. And I applied to Bard College, and I was accepted, but I never got the acceptance letter. So I called Bard and said, hey, you know, remember I drove up? They said, oh, yeah, we we love you. We want you to come because I was a French horn player. By the way, the reason I was a French horn player was because I wanted to be a trumpet player. I'm 10 years old. Where I'm 
eight years previous to draft age. And my mother says, no, there are too many trumpet players, but there are so few horn players. If you play the French horn and you're drafted in eight years, you'll be put into the uh, band instead of going to the uh, infantry. So I was forced to play the French horn instead of wanting to play the trumpet. But that's another story. So I, I did apply to Bard College. They told me I was accepted. They sent me an acceptance letter. I call my mother and I say, hey, mom, you know, without telling you, that's as far as I got. She said, if you think I got that acceptance letter from Bard College and ripped it up, I don't know what you're talking about. Mom, I didn't mention Bard. I didn't mention anything. She goes, you're crazy, Barry. You're crazy. So so all, all my life, you know, and I, I will say that Sweetie, who's my wife, always said you should be equally mean. She never said don't be mean to your mother. She said you should be equally mean to your father because he he sort of like allowed this to happen and he had his own issues. But the issue, which we'll get to eventually, but probably makes her the worst of the mothers, is my mother and father allowed my mother's cousin who was a known child molester CM, to live the with CM the CM. That's right. To live with us for several years when he was unemployed and couldn't live anywhere else. And, you know, spent time molesting myself, all the other kids in my apartment building in Washington Heights, cousins, nephews. And, um, so that's another reason that maybe she wasn't such a great mom and he wasn't such a great dad. And and uh, also she spent a lot of time in her room, I guess. Yeah, well, mom mom was a nar- both my parents were narcissists. Mom spent her time from the time she got home at three o'clock until eleven o'clock, uh lying in bed with a wet towel over her eyes because she always had a headache um, and uh, on the phone with various members of the UFT, which is the United Federation of Teachers. In fact, there's a joke. There's a Woody Allen movie. I think it's Sleepers where where someone says, what happened? There was a nuclear war and uh, Woody says, yeah, there was this guy, Albert Shanker, who was a president of the UFT who was infamous back then. So, uh, yeah, mom was a UFT chapter chairman and spent all of her time dealing with uh, herself and being the head of the union. And so even though you ate Swanson's TV dinners most every night, every now and then she decided to cook. And that that's was when things got bad. Probably worse than the Swanson TV dinners. That's right. Um, uh, I, I <laughs> There are two things. One is, we use more Morton salt than anyone, but not to flavor the meat, but to put out grease fires. So mom would take a piece of meat, put it uh, in the broiler, cover, uh, put aluminum foil down so that the grease, instead of dripping through the drip pan, would co- uh, coagulate, start a fire. Eventually, flames would be roiling up the front of the stove. We'd open up the stove pour a box of Morton salt over it to put out the grease fire. The other thing she wasn't good at, and this is hard to screw up, is is hard-boiled eggs. Mom, 
Dad and I would go to a Yankee game or go play miniature golf or go bowling on a Saturday. Mom would decide to make egg salad. She'd put all the eggs into a pot, put, fill it with water, and then go back to her bed, put the uh, wet towel on her face, lie down, make phone calls, and forget she was cooking eggs, right? So at some point, what happens is all the water boils out of the pot, and now you're basically frying hard-boiled eggs. So the, the, the eggs just explode. They hit the ceiling and spread out, and you come home, and it smells like World War II because, you know, eggs smell like sulfur. So we would come home and just open the door and immediately go, well, mom made eggs, and we'd close the door and go to the Chinese restaurant and leave mom to continue to talk to her UFT uh, fellow members. By the way, did you continue playing the French horn? Do you still play it? You know, I took it to Hampshire College when I when I was going to be a senior and I realized I didn't want to do this anymore. I applied to Hampshire, which is where I met Ken Burns, actually, who, who was at the, at the same time. I took the horn up to Hampshire thinking um, it would help me meet girls, <laughs> That's, which, by the way, Really, it didn't. Um, but I, I stopped playing. But I will say to this day, whenever we're recording a score for a movie I direct, at some point I will say to whoever the composer is, I'll say, hey, wouldn't that clarinet part sound better if it was played by the horn section? <laughs> because I hate clarinets and I love the sound of the French horn. I was good. I, I possibly could have gotten into Juilliard, but I, I didn't... See that I didn't think that's what I wanted to do. I didn't have a passion for it, so no. Now, the one one anymore. of the things, one of the great things your mom did do was she got you into a great high school. She finagled a way for you to get in there. Yeah, there was you know those three years at Music and Art High School. Uh, New York has some really specialized high schools. You know, Bronx Science, Music and Art is now called Fiorello LaGuardia School of Performing Arts, and Mom because she didn't want me to go to my local high school, which was George Washington, which was really tough, really dangerous, uh, sort of new enough teachers because of her chapter chairmanship and all that. She got her principal to call music and arts principal and have him audition me. And I did a great job. Mozart's third horn concerto is a tough one. And I nailed it. So I deserved to go to that school. And those three years were the best three uh, years of my entire education. Music and art high school was amazing. That's great. And then your dad, Sonny, who was at first a successful salesman and then decided to have his own business in lighting and electronics and just had one business failure after another, often leaving the family penniless, you know, unpaid bills and all that. Um, and he was gone a lot of the time, but he was your best friend through your childhood. And what was that relationship like? You know, uh, I love my dad. Uh, I loved his sense of humor. I, I loved his attitude towards life. It was the opposite of my mother's. Uh, she was very depressed. He was always optimistic, no matter the fact that we had no electricity, often had to avoid Lou the Butcher because we owed him too much money from burnt st uh, strip steaks. 
And he he was my best friend. We loved the Knicks, the Yankees. And uh, what happened was we were going to go to a Yankee game. I was about 14. And we were late. So dad said, just take my jacket. And uh, it was too big on me, but I put it on and I reached into my pocket and I pulled out a strip of condoms. And as far as I knew, my parents never had sex. In fact, I begged my parents to tell me I was adopted. I didn't want, I did not want to be biologically associated with either one of them. <laughs> and there, there it was. And there's my best friend and hero, my dad, with a strip of condoms, which immediately said to me that my father was having an affair. As it turns out, I learned later in life, he had had dozens of affairs. And dad looked at the strip and, and he just wouldn't leave it alone. He said, you know, your mom and I are planning a special weekend. And I said, sure you are, dad. And then it got worse because instead of just, just taking the loss and moving on, he literally tried to give me a sex education talk by saying, do you know when to have sex with a woman where you won't get them pregnant? And I said, well, in your case, dad, it's whenever you've got condoms. And he said, right, but let's say you don't have condoms. And I said, yes, dad, I know. Don't tell me. He said, And then he said, the only time you can make a woman pregnant is when she's having a period, which has made me immediately realize why I was an only child, because they didn't even know when to have sex to have children. So I said, you know, dad, I think it's the opposite. I think it's the only time you can't get a woman pregnant is when she's having a period. And he literally looked at me and said, good to know. And and after that, did your relationship change? I mean, obviously, you were you, I, you were in touch with your dad into his nineties. Yeah, um, it it didn't change uh, overly, you know. Uh, internally, emotionally, it changed, but I didn't I didn't punish him for it because if I was married to my mother, I would want to be having affairs as well. So. Going on to a different subject, near-death experiences, which you've had a, a few of, um, I'd love to hear about two of them. One is your dad driving to Miami Beach, and the other one is the private plane to Van Nuys Airport. But why don't you start with the the, the, the annual, I guess, trip to Miami Beach, with one of them being particularly memorable? Well, you know, again, my parents never really had money. Whenever they had any money at all, dad would either start a new business or weirdly uh, invest in Broadway musicals, such as Bravo Giovanni or Pearly Victorious, movies uh, movies you've never, uh, sorry, uh, musical theater you've never heard of. In fact, when I finished Adam's Family, Scott Rudin, as a gift, found an LP cast recording of Bravo Giovanni, which is pretty amazing. So we would drive down to Florida because we couldn't afford a plane ride. Um, and uh, our we had a 10-year-old Cadillac, which dad bought when it was 10 years old. He could never afford a new one. And um, 
we would drive down there every year. Dad would drive straight through. My ne- my mother never learned how to drive, claiming, by the way, my mother was also a pathological liar, uh, claiming that New York State did not let a sibling, sorry, a child of someone who had epilepsy get a driver's license. And she claimed her father had epilepsy. Therefore, she couldn't get a driver's license. So she never got a driver's license. Dad would drive the whole way through, 30 hours nonstop. And somewhere over Georgia, I would talk to Dad to keep him awake the whole time. Mom would lie in the back seat. I found I realized Dad had fallen asleep, and we were in the oncoming traffic lane about to hit an 18-wheeler. Woke him up. Somehow we got through that. And in fact... The next year, and this is why I think I have such a fear of flying. The next year, dad saved enough money we could fly to Miami. Um, But uh, in fact, I I always say every time I get off an airplane, I view it as a failed suicide attempt. Because on my very first airplane ride with my mother and my father, somehow my mother convinced the flight attendants and pilots that she was having an angina attack and was about to die and convinced them to drop the oxygen masks. So my first flight, it's me, another 110 people in a 707 with dangling oxygen masks and my mother sucking air. So I've always been afraid of flying. Cut to, I have a deal with... uh, uh, Sony television. I have a uh, private airplane hours. I'm flying out from East Hampton where I live to uh, Van Nuys airport for a meeting. And we're about 20, 14 minutes from landing. And suddenly we are nosediving. I'm hearing claxtons and uh, recorded voices pull up. I'm alone on the plane. The pilot flight attendant and co-pilot are all in the the uh, flight cabin with the door closed. We're nose diving to the ground. And I think the real reason I've always been afraid of dying in a plane crash is knowing you're going to die, having that five minutes where will you relive your life? Will you think about all the re- ways you could have not gotten on this plane? Will you live through your regrets? Well, no. What I did is I crossed my arms, put my feet up on the seat in front of me, and tried every version of a line reading of, and now I die. So I went, and now I die. Then I tried, and now I die. And then I tried, and now I die? I went through all of them. We crash land into Van Nuys Airport. We are heading towards a brick wall. We do a huge 180, and we start to destroy parked airplanes as a method to stop. So we are they are aiming at and bouncing over Cessnas and Piper Cubs. We go through a fence. We're now in the Van Nuys parking lot, and every time we hit something, I try another version of And Now I Die. We come to a stop, three out-of-control human beings, pilot, co-pilot, flight attendant, 
are trying to open the door to this Gulf Stream 2. What I know that they don't know is we're lodged against a pine tree in the parking lot. And I see that there's fluid dripping from an engine. And I go, say, are we at all worried about that? In sort of a dry, sardonic kind of way. The pilot says, Sonny, you don't want to hear a pilot says, she says, oh my God, the three of them run past me. I calmly wait for instructions until I realize I am alone on the plane. They have run to the back of the plane, through the bathroom, through the luggage compartment, opened the luggage compartment door, and have fled. They're fleeing. Now all the L.A. you know traffic helicopters are overhead filming this. I go to the back. I see them fleeing. I see the Van Nuys Fire Department rush up. They're all yelling for me to get off the plane. But my fear of heights is only greater than my fear of flying. So I say to the the firemen, I go, it's okay for you to say jump. Who's catching me? And that's where they went, made a mistake. They weren't specific. They they didn't say, Irv, Irv will catch you. They just said, just get off the plane, get off the plane. I said, right, but who's catching? So you look around, you find the guy with the biggest mustache, because every fireman has a mustache. I, I said, you, you're catching me. He said, I don't give an F. Just get off this plane because they think it's going to explode, right? So, by the way, I'm about five feet off the ground. I hugged him and, you know, and then landed on the, you know, hinged to the ground. And we all fled. The plane didn't uh, blow up. And it made me a much better flyer. Since then, I've been in terrible turbulence. Don't care because I know what it's going to be like. I still think I'll die in a plane crash, but at least I know what it will be like. What year was that? 99. Because it was a news event. I mean, it was, you know, a real thing. I mean, it wasn't a news event like Barry Sonnenfeld was in a plane crash. It was, there was a plane crash. But I will say every single executive who knew me pretended to call to see how I was, but really wanted to know which leasing company it was so they made sure not to get that plane again which which we destroyed anyway so they were safe i want to go back to your your dad he gave you he gave you a great piece of career advice would you share that with us yeah you know um the good thing about my parents were that neither one of them wanted me to go into a typical sort of middle class jewish profession Neither wanted me to be a writer, or, I'm sorry, to be a doctor or a lawyer. My mother wanted me in, to be an artist. And my dad said, figure out what in life will make you happy and you'll figure out a way to make a living doing it. Don't, don't try to f- figure out a career. Figure out what you want to do in life that will make you happy. I never thought I would be happy, so that was a problem. And even when I went to graduate film school, it was really for lack of anything to do. So I I could spend another three years, uh, you know, not looking for a job. Uh, I thought I wanted to be a still photographer and that would make me happy. I realized pretty quickly that it's sort of a more uh, lonely job. And I think I wanted something that, that had more collaboration. 
So that's why I got into the film business. But it it was truly great advice. And I to this day, when I speak at events and stuff, I tell I tell the kids two things. One, figure out what you want to do. And the other thing is don't work your way up. I was never a camera assistant. I was never a camera operator. I I got out of film school. I bought a camera so I could call myself a cameraman without being a dilettante and never took those intermediate steps. And I'm, I'm always trying to convince people, uh, declare who you are and become that person. You know, um, it's funny, uh, David Sedaris and Jerry Seinfeld both say the same thing about writing. You know, how do you become a writer? And Jerry says, you sit down at the desk with a pad and a pen or a typewriter, and you're a writer. You're writing, you're thinking, you don't, but just doing that, being there with that pad and pen, something will come to you and you'll start writing. But it's, it, it's how I became a writer. I just decided that's what I'll try to do. And you started uh, the photography in junior high. How did starting as a still photographer affect your work when you became a cinematographer and a director in terms of how you shoot? It's funny. Uh, my mother tried to convince me to go to film school and claimed she would pay for it and then didn't. But that's another story. Um, um, I, loved, I loved wide angle lenses. Uh, as a still photographer, I bought a Leica, and the first two lenses that I bought were a 35 millimeter and then a 21 millimeter, which is a very wide lens. And when I went to NYU, because I had background, I developed my own film and made my own prints. I felt very comfortable in the world of cinematography. And I, there were two guys at film school that were sought after to shoot everyone's films, myself and the other guy who lived in my apartment building in the East Village was Bill Pope, who went on to shoot the Matrix movies, the Spider-Man movies. He shot Men in Black 3 for me. So I felt very comfortable around lenses and around technology. And, and to this day, I would say 80% of every shot I've ever shot in my life has been with a 21 millimeter lens or wider. I think there's something wonderful about wide lenses that the audience doesn't consciously know, but unconsciously knows that the camera is close to the action. The other thing that, that because I'm an only child and still wanted all this attention is if you look at the body of my work, whether it's the stuff I did for the Coen brothers like Blood Simple or, or Raising Arizona or Throw Mama from the Train for Danny DeVito, or the stuff I've done like Adam's Family. The camera is an active participant in the movie. It's not just a recording device. It's another character. And I think that's my way of saying, here I am. Hey, uh, here's Barry. Because I was never good enough to be an actor, but I still wanted to be an active participant in in the visual style of the of the the show so my cameras are very self-conscious they're very energetic and they're not just used like a recording device and i think weirdly it's part of my personality 
just finishing up with your parents, how did your relationship with them evolve as you became, you know, very successful and well known? Did they stay in Washington Heights or or go I, to see I your I bought films? them an apartment. I bought them an apartment uh, in the West Side. I said, you know what? Uh, I know that you like Washington Heights because you can go outside and buy crack without having to get on the subway, but I think you'll be safer on the Upper West Side. So I, I, I bought them an apartment there, but they were very jealous. You know, I was on the David Letterman show eight times, and every time I got off that show, my father would call me and say, you look nervous, or you were funnier last time. They would never, ever, ever would uh, give me uh, sort of any sort of credit or love. They would always criticize through their love. They'd always criticize me. But in a way, I was so mean to my mother. You know, Newsweek, when Men in Black was about to open, Newsweek had a cover story on Men in Black. And in the body of the article, it said that Barry Sonnenfeld is so neurotic, he would walk around the set offering any crew member $400,000 to either get him fired or kill his mother, right? So mom reads this in Newsweek and calls me and says, do you really wish I were dead? And I said, mom, I promise you, I would never pay anyone $400,000 to kill you. And she said, thank you, Barry. I love you too. And then she said, and do me a favor. The next time you're mean to me, be mean to your father also. (laughs) So the one story that I found just so hard to believe is the one about going to St. Vincent's Hospital. And I wonder if you recount that. Sure. Now, look, this whole book sounds scatological, but it really isn't. But here we go. As it turns out, from time to time, I get kidney stones. The first time I got them, I was a a third-year student at NYU Graduate Film School. I was uh, at my girlfriend's house. And I woke up in the middle of the night with this pain unlike anything anyone's ever experienced. Um, I won't go into graphic detail about how painful it was, but it was so painful that I convinced my girlfriend to drive me to St. Vincent's Hospital, the nearest hospital in the East Village. I was in so much pain, I couldn't get my clothes on. And Debbie already hated me so much that she didn't help me. She just went to get the car. So I had to crawl down three flights of stairs because it's the East Village and there are no elevators in those apartment buildings. I somehow get, truly, you were in so much pain, you can't find a place to to sit. I get to St. Vincent's. It's 3 a.m. She goes to park the car. I crawl up the steps of St. Vincent's Hospital, totally nude, and now I am faced with a revolving door. So I lay down on the ground and and then stretch my body enough to just, with my legs, push the revolving door until the back of the next door hits my head, 
Then I worm my way forward and push again. It took me about eight minutes to get into the hospital, push these poor women who were there because their their kids were in a knife fight. Anyway, I eventually uh, find out that I, I, I'm passing a kidney stone. It's taken care of. I've gotten many other kidney stones since then, and I don't recommend them. But you were actually crawling up the steps. I know St. Vincent's Hospital. You were crawling up the steps naked in totally the middle of the naked. night in New York. Totally naked. But you know what? Those days, that just meant that I was probably, they probably thought I was on like some sort of drug issue or something. But yep, that was me. So after your career stint in pornographic films, which I'm not sure we're going to talk too much about. I wouldn't. uh, You met someone who changed your life forever, sweetie. Uh, But she was married to your idol, a photographer. So tell us how you and sweetie ended up together, given the circumstances of your first meeting. My idol was a still photographer named Elliot Erwitt. I loved his work. And remember, I thought I wanted to be a still photographer in the sort of street journalism style of Elliot and Lee Friedlander, Gary Winogrand. I graduate high school. The first person I call is Elliot Erwitt, who is listed in the phone book. He says, I'm sorry, my stable is full. I remember that. I graduate college. The first person I call is Elliot Erwitt. Same address, same phone number. I'm sorry, my stable is full. I graduate NYU graduate film school. Call Elliot. I'm sorry, my stable is full. I'm now shooting industrial films, and it's now two years after that. And this gaffer, the guy who's in charge of the lights on this Sony industrial I'm doing, says there's a guy who I know who's looking for an assistant because he he wants to get into the film business. He just bought some used 16 millimeter equipment, Elliot Erwitt. I go to meet Elliot and Elliot is there with this woman who's nine months pregnant, who I assume is his assistant because he's talking to her like he's... Uh, her, she's his assistant, but of course it was Sweetie, whose name is Susan. Uh, I gave her the name Sweetie. And over the, Elliot and Susan and I became best friends. And over the next three years, Elliot and I, and sometimes Susan traveled the world together, Africa, Japan, Europe, shooting industrials and shooting, uh, documentaries for home box office, 60 minutes, 2020. And, Susan, weirdly, sweetie, looked like the girl of my dreams when I was 12 years old. I could only draw in profile, but she had the same nose and the same eyelashes. And the... So anyway, over the years, I I became their, their kid, and I became Susan's best girlfriend. I would read, t- the, I would read Self Magazine and say to sweetie, Hey, have you and Elliot tried today's sponges? Is this new contraceptive? I mean, we were really like just, I was like her best girlfriend. And at some point, Elliot and Susan split up and Susan moved to uh, their home in East Hampton. They, they, they had a home in East Hampton and lived in New York. I had an apartment in New York and a starter home in East Hampton. 
And Elliot said to everyone, you're either my friend or her friend. And I said, well, I'm, I'm picking her. And uh, so Susan and I uh, hung out together as best friends. And then at some point, there was started to be some sexual tension. And I don't think either one of us wanted to ruin this perfect friendship. But we took a chance and we've been married for 32 years. So, so great. Yeah. But she was the girl of my dreams since I was 12 years old and hadn't met her. And she keeps me, she's the reason why I have friends. She, you know, she's, she's the one who can make excuses for my neuroses and people like me because they like sweetie. I, I come along for the ride. And so, and so many things happen, I guess, in everyone's life by chance that you, you know, met him to work with him and then met her. And then also by chance, you met Joel Cohn at a party in 1980. Uh, tell us about that chance meeting. That obviously changed the whole trajectory of your that career. That changed everything. And, and you know, everyone thinks that Joel and I knew each other at film school because he also went to N NYU. But... I was in the graduate program. He was in the undergraduate program. We both knew this girl named Hillary Ney, uh, whose dad was the chairman of Young and Rubicam. And we were both invited to this Christmas party. And there were only wasps from Darien, Connecticut. There were two Jews. It was me and this tall guy that looked like Howard Stern on the other side of the room. And we sort of somehow knew we were the Jews in the room. We started to talk and Joe had, and this is pre-video, you know, if you were going to do a low budget film, you would shoot it on 16 millimeter. Now you would shoot it on video, but th there were no video cameras then. And Joel said that he and his brother, Ethan, had just written this script called Blood Simple. And they were going to shoot a trailer as if it was a finished movie. And then, bring a projector and show that to dentists and lawyers and doctors. They all have investing clubs, you know? And I said, well, you know, I own a 16 millimeter camera because I had bought one. So I wouldn't feel like a dilettante. It was $4,000. And Joel said, well, you're hired. So Joel hired me to shoot the trailer uh, Joel and Ethan and I, and then I convinced him, by the way, to shoot in 35 millimeters. So we didn't even use my camera, but we spent five days, five days and nights for one day of rental because we rented it over President's Weekend, filming the trailer for Blood Simple. We used friends and shot the back of their heads and mounted cameras to my car's bumper, my Oldsmobile Cutlass's bumper. We cut together the trailer. It took us a year to raise the 750000 to make Blood Simple. But this gets back to what I was saying about declare what, who you are and just become that person. The first day on the set of Blood Simple, which changed our lives, it got to the New York Film Festival. It was a darling of the critics. The first day on that set was the first day that Joel, Ethan, or I had ever been on a movie set. As I said, I didn't work my way up as a cameraman. Joel had never directed anything except Super 8 movies that he and Ethan had done. 
Ethan had never produced anything, but we declared ourselves producer, director, uh, cinematographer, and therefore we were. And literally the first day on that set was the first day we had ever been on a movie set, ever. And then I guess you just went on from there. That got a lot of critical acclaim. In fact, Janet Maslin, who wrote the review in the New York Times, specifically mentioned how Joel and Ethan were going to become big deals in the film industry and how Barry Sonnenfeld's cinematography was unlike anything she had ever seen, et cetera, et cetera. That led to uh, raising Arizona. And by then we were all on our way to bigger and better things. And so how long did you work as a cinematographer and then how did you make the transition to director? I was really, really happy as a cameraman. I was not one of those guys saying, I can direct better than she can. I I was really happy as a cameraman. And I did it, I guess, for 10 years. Scott Rudin, who's, who's truly one of the great producers that in the history of film, was the head of Fox, president of production of Fox, when I had shot Raising Arizona and when I had shot Big. And he felt that my contribution in both cases was beyond the norm. So he sent me the script for Adam's Family without me ever saying I wanted to direct. I was in LA finishing up Misery for Rob Reiner. I was watching the Indy 500 with my wife in bed at the Four Seasons Hotel on Doheny with Sweetie. And uh, Rudin sent me the script, said, read it and meet me in two hours at Hugo's to uh, talk, talk about you directing this. So I read it. I loved Charles Adams. I loved his cartoons in The New Yorker. Again, if you're if you're of Jewish persuasion and you live on the Upper West Side, you read The New Yorker while sitting on the toilet reading all those great cartoons. In fact, my father read the entire serialization of In Cold Blood in The New Yorker while sitting on the toilet. Dad, I need the bathroom. Let me finish the chapter. Anyway, so I, I meet Scott, Scott Rudin. I tell them all the reasons, tell them all the reasons the script's no good. And he says, those are the reasons you should do it because those you're right. And I said, don't you want, don't you want like someone who's done this before? And Rudin, who's always, uh, he's both a pathological liar and also very honest, said, I went to Tim Burton and Terry Gilliam and they, they both turned me down. So since I can't get a good director, I figured I might try you. I think he wanted a visual stylist. You know, he didn't want someone who would just shoot a normal comedy, that it needed, you know, a visual style in terms of lighting, camera moves. So I said, you know what, Scott, sure. If you can get me hired to direct it, sure, I'll direct it. And of course, Scott convinced Orion to hire me to direct the movie. And then there's several chapters of how difficult it was being a first-time director on that movie, as you know. Right. I have a, some questions from the audience that I want to give an opportunity to ask. Now, one of them is about Schmigadoon, which I am watching right now. 
Are you involved? I didn't even know. Yeah, I directed the six episodes. Yeah. So uh, it's uh, this person says it's terrific. How did you, how did it come about that you got involved? Is it true you normally hate musicals? Oh, I hate musicals. I hate musicals. I hate filmed musicals. Um, uh, I was sent this script, and there's I always have Sweetie. Bo Welsh, who's a production designer I always work with, and Rose Lamb, who produces the television I work with. I had them read the script. I said, I don't get it. And they all said, this is great. And I said, all right, but you know this singing and dancing. They said, yeah, it's going to be great. So I agreed to do it. But I warned the, the creator, Cinco Paul, and I warned Broadway video, Andrew Singer, that I just, I know how to shoot it. I know how to direct it. I just got to tell you, I, I, I hate it. Uh, but, but, and in fact, as a joke, I would say to Cinco every day, should we drop this song? And he, he'd get angry at me, but I was, I was actually only kidding. So, um, I also really wanted to work with Lauren Michaels, who was the executive producer and, Cecily Strong was already attached, and I thought she was so talented. So I agreed to do it. I watched a bunch of musicals just to make sure I was right about how to film them. Because most modern musicals are shot too tight. The dance numbers are shot with close-ups or inserts of their feet. Dance numbers, you should see people from head to toe. So I watched all these old musicals, and that's how they did it. I hated all of them. I watched Brigadoon. I watched Carousel. I watched Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I thought, this is torture. I just got to stop doing this. But yes, I I did direct all the episodes of Schmigadoon. I'm very proud of it. I loved the entire cast. And and I still don't want to go see musicals, but... Well, it's, 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 it's really a wonderful... I love musicals, but it's a wonderful, you know, take off on on old movie musicals i mean it looks like an old movie musical except it's crazy and ridiculous and and the songs are are amazing so yeah, yeah Cinco did a great job he wrote and direct he wrote and and lyrics and music for all those songs they're pretty pretty great so another question from the audience do you have a favorite film and one you'd rather forget yes well, favorite film that I didn't direct is Dr. Strangelove. I watch it once or twice a year. It's totally, Kubrick is my favorite director. And what I love about Strangelove, which is also what I try to do, is to film comedies where, where you don't let the actors or the production designer or the lab or the DP or the composer know it's a comedy. And what makes what makes um, Strange Love so good is how real everyone plays it. So the scene is absurd, but the actors aren't playing it for comedy. So that's my favorite movie. One I I wish I could forget is I'm I'm not a huge fan of Wild Wild West. I know why I did it. I know what I did wrong. So if I had that one to do over again, maybe. Although maybe I do it again, but do it better. Do you have a favorite among your films that you you directed? Probably, uh, probably Get Shorty. 
Uh, again, it's everyone, you know, you have Dennis Farina, you have Gene Hackman. They're all really stupid characters, but none of the acting is stupid. The acting is all real. So I think Get Shorty is my favorite movie. I also loved doing the three years in Vancouver on a series of unfortunate events. I was a showrunner and directed 40% of the episodes, but I, I would say Get Shorty. Now, one of the questions here is what film directors do you admire and why? And obviously you just told us Kubrick. Any others? Yeah, I, I really like the Coen brothers. Um, uh, a lot of their stuff I really love. I love Kubrick. Um, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a film buff. I haven't seen a lot of movies. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, Kubrick and the Coens are real good. I'll get back to you with some other ones. Um, what do you, another question from the audience, what do you look for in a script? I'll be honest with you. It pretty much needs to be funny. And also I really am attracted to uh, scripts that are involved like world building, whether it's pushing daisies or a series of unfortunate events or men in black or, or, you know, Schmigadoon, uh, they're sort of, they allow me to stylize a world. You know, I don't, I don't think I, I would be good directing an episode of Law and Order. You know, I, I, I once directed a television, a legal television pilot that wasn't funny. It was just a straight ahead law drama. And it was, it was like so torturous. Uh, so I, I would say, world building and quirky how do you feel about sequels to films any rules of thumb on whether they'll be successful sequels can be good and they can be bad um i i i think um what you don't want to do is be reverential to the original material and i'll tell you what i mean uh, both the sequel to Get Shorty, uh, which was called Be Cool, directed by F. Gary Gray, and the fourth Men in Black, which was called Men in Black International, directed by F. Gary Gray. <laughs> Seems that whenever you need a sequel that I don't want to do, call F. Gary Gray. I think both of those were so reverential to the original material that there was nothing, there was nothing new and fresh. I really didn't like Men in Black Two, which I directed, but I really loved Men in Black Three, which I directed. So you can both have successful and failures within a, a sequels. So uh, I think the secret is to try. You just don't want to make the same movie again, you know. And it sounds like you knew you wanted to stop with Get Shorty as it was and then not go beyond Men in Black 3. So there is a there is an end point to these things. Yeah, There, there really is. Another interesting question from the audience. Who's the most surprisingly funny actor you've ever worked with? Um, I would say both Dennis Farina, who is a Chicago cop, but but in the same movie, Gene Hackman. So here's what happened on Get Shorty. 
Danny DeVito and I had been trying to make that movie for seven years. And every studio passed because there had never been a successful Elmore Leonard movie based on an Elmore Leonard book until Get Shorty. And also no one wanted to make a film about Inside Hollywood, which this was. Danny was supposed to actually play the the Travolta role. He was supposed to be Chili Palmer. But he he had to drop out because he was going to do Matilda. And Danny didn't know if we were just wasting our time because there had been many years. So we had a table reading just to see if we were crazy because we had the script just to see if we were crazy or not. So we had Danny reading the Travolta part, but we had Dennis Farina reading his part and we had Gene Hackman reading his part. And when we were done, Sweetie came up to me and said, if you don't, if you lose Danny, but you have Farina and Hackman, that's all you need. And I went up to Hackman and I said, Gene, you were fantastic. You were so funny. And he said, what are you talking about? I'm not a comedian. And I said, right, that's why you're funny. You were so real. You just played it real. And so the I think Gene was brilliantly funny in that show and you would not expect it. In fact, he then went on and direct and worked on Birdcage, another comedy. And then, of course, if we had more time, we could talk about Tommy Lee Jones, who who I taught how to be funny. Do talk, tell tell us about it, because it's hard, you know, looking at Tommy Lee Jones' face, it's hard to imagine him even smiling. But Tommy Tommy didn't know anything about comedy, right? So, and also, Will Smith was finishing another movie. So for the first two weeks. We only were working with Tommy. And so the first scene we did with Tommy Lee Jones is the first scene in Men in Black. Uh, they Tommy arrests this illegal alien in the Sonora Desert, and the alien takes off his disguise, and it's really Mikey who's speaking in an alien language, and he's got flippers, right? And it's the first day of shooting, and Tommy is incredibly incredibly, unbelievably mean and uncomfortable in his own body, right? And he's, I'm so intimidated. And Tommy's first line to Mikey, again, flippers speaking in an alien language is Tommy says, okay, Mikey, that's enough. Put up your hands and all your flippers cut. Hey, Tommy, it's going to be funnier if you don't acknowledge that all your flippers is funny. See, let the audience decide that's funny. This is all in a day's work. You're a government issue. You're a man in black. You see flippers all the time. So don't, don't play comedy. Just play reality. For 20 weeks, Tommy Lee Jones hated me. And for 20 weeks, I would not let him be funny. And his his agent, Michael Black, called me up and said, you only want Will to be funny. You don't want Tommy to be funny. I said, no, Laurel and Hardy, George Burns and Gracie Allen, you only want one funny person in your comedy but both are comedy. In fact, the reaction is always funnier than the action. And I said, look, I was a cinematographer 
on When Harry Met Sally. And as funny as Meg Ryan is faking an orgasm, and you're in the theater and everyone is laughing, you cut to Billy Crystal doing nothing but reacting, and the laugh goes from 100 to 120. I said, I promise you, Tommy is funnier than Will Smith. I promise you. And for 20 weeks, I sat on Tommy and would not let him be funny. Cut to, we're about to have the press junket, so Tommy has to see the movie for the first time because the press is going to ask him questions. And of course, they love Tommy. And of course, Tommy loves his performance. And I have to say that the great thing about Tommy, and he just had his birthday a couple of days ago, is every every single journalist who said, how did you get to be so funny? Tommy said, it's really simple. The secret to being funny is stand next to Will Smith and do whatever Barry Sonnenfeld tells you to do. Uh, so, And then after that, it was easy because Tommy realized that that's where the comedy is. Never play the comedy. Actually, there's an, another question that struck me as strange, but it, it's related. Are you a laugher on the set? And has that ever created problems? Yes, I've ruined many, many, many takes. <clears throat> I've ruined many takes laughing, barking out laughter. You know, again, the problem with Tommy is all of our guns, you know, that we had in Men in Black, they're all space guns. They don't actually shoot anything. So Tommy would add his own sound effects. So Tommy would go, pew, cut, what? Tommy, don't make the sound of the gun. And Tommy said, I didn't. And I would go, Will, and Will would go, yeah, Tommy, you did it again. So at some point I would laugh because I knew every single take, Tommy was going to make the sound of a gun shooting whenever he had to shoot a gun. He, he was like an eight-year-old with those guns. Yes, I've ruined many takes laughing. So we've now come to the point in our program where we only have time for one more question. And uh, and I think that's, so what's cooking? So what, what are you working on? Give us a little preview of what's, what's coming up. There's never anything coming up. And there's always 11 things coming up. Nothing is ever happening in the film business until it's happening. I, I, I've had three or four things that I thought were going to go that didn't go. Um, Schmigadoon, I just, you know, one day I got that script, the six scripts. I read them. I said, yes, uh, I'm developing a bunch of things. In fact, we were trying to make uh, uh, Rob Reiner optioned the book rights to Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. We had a very good writer, Alan Zweibel. I had uh, Jason Alexander playing me, and we could not sell it. We went to every every streamer. So I don't know. I don't know what's coming up until the next thing comes up. I have to say, in reading the book, I was thinking, I was thinking, who would play your parents? You know, I mean, because it seems like it would work as a movie. Well, the person to play my mother, although he's dead, is Vincent Gardenia. Or Roger Ebert. Both of those two would have been perfect for mom. All right. Our thanks to director Barry Sonnenfeld, author of the new memoir, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, Memoirs of a Neurotic Filmmaker, which is available at your local bookstore and online. 
This program has been part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Osher Foundation. We also want to thank our viewers. I'm John Bolin, and now this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.